Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, coming at you from St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. I'd like to welcome you all to two very special guests we have on the episode today. Dr. Margaret Thompson is an emergency physician at St. Michael's Hospital and the medical director of the Ontario Poison Centre at the Hospital for Sick Children. She is double certified in emergency medicine by the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada and the American Board of Emergency Medicine. Dr. Dan Cass is well known here for his stimulating and entertaining talks in emergency medicine. He was the Chief of Emergency Medicine at St. Michael's Hospital from 1997 to 2007 and currently holds the position of Regional Supervising Coroner for Toronto West. I got some wonderful feedback from episode one, our occult injuries episode, Uh, but the most amazing thing about the first episode was something that I neglected to tell y'all, was that Natalie Momin, at the time of recording, was 40 weeks pregnant, but not only that, six hours after we finished the recording, she went into labor, and now she's got a beautiful baby boy. So congratulations to Natalie. Who's my pretty baby? Who's my pretty little baby? You're my, my pretty little baby. Hey, hey, pretty baby. Hey, hey, pretty baby. Ho, ho, pretty little baby. You're my, my pretty little baby. Hey, hey, pretty baby. Shifting gears here about as much as you possibly can shift gears. Let's talk about excited delirium and sudden death. This is an incredibly interesting subject. I only learned about it about a year ago when Dr. Thompson presented Grand Rounds at St. Mike's. And that really got me interested in in this entity. Excited delirium syndrome is not a new entity, A strikingly similar syndrome was described in 1849 in which psychiatric patients who developed an acute onset of continuous agitation and mania in the presence of fever suddenly collapsed and died. Fatal excited delirium entered the literature in about the mid-80s after the rise of cocaine use in North America. It was described as a syndrome that involved acute drug intoxication, usually. Often there was a history of mental illness, especially those conditions involving paranoia. There was often a struggle with law enforcement and some sort of physical or chemical restraint or electrical restraint with a taser gun was used. There was a sudden unexpected death and the autopsy would usually fail to reveal any definite cause of death. Rosen's has a total of about one sentence on excited delirium syndrome, despite the fact that although it's very rare... It's treated almost exclusively by emergency doctors. 
and it's associated with a high morbidity and mortality, this is a syndrome that we must be able to recognize and treat rapidly. In the medical community, this is our syndrome uh, to treat. So let's jump into the first case here. At 3.30 a.m., the police responded to a call concerning an unresponsive person outside a corner store. Upon their arrival, they found a 36-year-old obese male acting strangely and becoming a nuisance. The police asked the person to tell them what was going on. At this point, the individual yelled multiple profanities at the officers and attempted to place one in a headlock. After instructing the individual to stay back, the two officers attempted to restrain him, striking him repeatedly with batons. Although knocked to the ground by the police, the individual continued to struggle and resisted verbal orders and physical attempts to place his hands behind his back. With the assistance of four additional officers, the individual was successfully handcuffed behind his back, lying prone on the ground. Eventually, the patient was subdued and brought to the emergency department in prone position with hands cuffed behind him. In the emergency department, he had a witness respiratory arrest. He was intubated within four minutes. The usual ABCDs were done and ABGs were drawn. The patient then became asystolic and was resuscitated with epinephrine and atropine to sinus tachycardia. His blood gas showed a pH of 6.46 a PCO2 of 17, a bicarb of 4, the lactate came back at 24, the CK came back elevated, his creatinine was 172, and he had elevated LFTs and liver enzymes. He again went into asystolic arrest and was unable to be resuscitated. Post-mortem examination, including toxicology screening, revealed that the patient had cardiomegaly and that both PCP and cocaine were detected on toxicological tests. There was no evidence of internal injury noted. So Dr. Cass, can you give us a rough idea of what this excited delirium syndrome is? The best reference for this is the American College of Emergency Physicians Task Force White Paper on Excited Delirium Syndrome because to take a step back, there's controversy about whether this even exists as an entity. And then if it does exist, then what's the case definition? And there isn't a good case definition. But I think what's emerging more and more as people begin to publish their experience in case series of these are some common findings and common observations at the scene that are very frequently associated with people with this excited delirium state. The highest frequency ones that are, that are noted are inordinate pain tolerance, which is very relevant with the law enforcement interaction with these patients because law enforcement use of force and control protocols, and I'm not purporting to be an expert on them, but a lot of them are based on use of, first of all, de-escalation and verbal de-escalation, and then using painful stimuli to try and control someone's behavior. And whether that painful stimulus is a baton or whether it's a conducted energy weapon or any number of things. And in fact, these things don't work well in people with excited delirium. They have inordinate pain tolerance, and the things that could normally be done if verbal de-escalation has failed and you move to physical attempts, these things don't work well in people with excited delirium, and that's a real problem for law enforcement. Tachypnea, sweating, agitation, so the sort of typical appearance of people with sympathomimetic-type presentations are highly associated with this. 
hyperthermia and even even what's referred to as tactile hyperthermia. So just touching the person and they're burning up. You usually can't uh, get close enough to you know do do an oral or or a tympanic temperature on these people easily. And then lack of compliance with with police direction. So again, sort of the failing of verbal de-escalation techniques. Lack of tiring. These people have amazing, inordinate strength, and they don't tire. They don't fatigue easily. So prolonged uh, struggles often ensue in these people. So they refer to it as superhuman. That's right. Superhuman. That's right. So people have been observed to have conducted energy weapons, discharged on them either direct contact or with darts, and have multiple firings of the weapon, and the person continues to function, mm-hmm. which is almost unheard of in someone that doesn't have presentation like this. The sort of lesser associated clinical findings or clinical observations are people sort of inappropriately clothed, so running around naked in, in cold weather or things like that. And there's there's a uh, an observation that sort of appeared in the literature and it seemed like it was going to be this this mystical association with excited delirium, with a mirror glass attraction, where there was an observation that these people would come and they would see themselves in a reflection in a plate glass window or something, and they would sort of become fixated on that. And although that was sort of an interesting observation, when you when people have sort of looked at that more prospectively, it doesn't seem like a very common association. It's about 10% of people. But of those things, pain tolerance to kipnea, sweating, agitation, Tactile hyperthermia, non-compliance with police, lack of tiring, unusual strength, inappropriately clothed, mirror glass attraction. The general thinking is that if you have six or more of those, you've sort of fit the usual definition for excited delirium syndrome. And, and, you know, again, there is not an accepted case definition, but that's about as close as there is out there. Reviewing here some of the features of excited delirium syndrome... These patients are usually male. They're an average age of 36 years old. There's destructive or bizarre behavior generating a call to police with a suspected or known psychostimulant drug or alcohol intoxication. They have a suspected or known psychiatric illness. There's often nudity or inappropriate clothing for the environment. There's a failure to recognize or respond to police presence at the scene. And there is often erratic or violent behavior. And they display unusual physical strength and stamina with ongoing struggle despite futility. Dr. Thompson explains here why it has been difficult for a case definition to be nailed down. I think that's part, partly problem that the psychiatrists haven't recognized it. In the DSM-4, mm-hmm. you know, delirium is is recognized in the DSM-4, but not excited or agitated delirium, as some of the papers talk about it as being agitated delirium. And just to review the diagnostic criteria for delirium due to a medical condition, as per the DSM-4, there are four things. The first being a disturbance of consciousness, i.e. reduced clarity of awareness of the environment with reduced ability to focus, sustain, or shift attention. Secondly, a change in cognition, such as memory deficit, disorientation, language disturbance, or the development of a perceptual disturbance that is not better accounted for by a pre-existing, established, or evolving dementia. Thirdly, the disturbance develops over a short period of time, usually hours to days, and tends to fluctuate during the course of the day, 
And lastly, there is evidence from the history, physical examination, or laboratory findings that the disturbance is caused by the direct physiological consequences of a general medical condition. The psychiatrists haven't adopted this definition, but it doesn't mean that it can't be a clinical entity that emergency physicians adopt, as the white paper and uh, written by ASAP has pointed out to emergency physicians, you need to be aware of this syndrome because sometimes they might make it to the emergency department, whereas most of the time they die in the field. Or sometimes you might be dictating to the paramedics in the field and giving them orders as to how to care for a patient who has collapsed in the field. So the emergency physician has to be aware of this syndrome because of that. As far as you know, is ASAP the only organization that's sort of accepted this as a syndrome? It's not the only one. The American Medical Association and the International Classification of Disease have not included the term. There, there are some organizations, the National Association of Medical Examiners, name, uh, have accepted that as, a, have, okay. as a diagnosis. So part of the conversation we were having earlier was whether it's a cause of death or whether it could be listed as a cause of death. Association of Medical Examiners in the United States have accepted that this is a real entity, and you could certainly include that either in the cause of death or in the statement of what the findings are leading up to a death, that that's an acceptable term. Okay, so we're going to be hearing a lot more about this I think so. in, in the next few years. So you were mentioning that the patient has this sympathomimetic drive. How can we differentiate this from, say, sympathomimetic syndrome from a cocaine binge? I don't think you can at the time. I think it's sudden onset, but that's part of the definition of delirium, that the patient is perfect, the person is perfectly normal two or three hours ago, but nobody has that observation usually. You don't follow them. And using crack cocaine or using cocaine hydrochloride or using some of the other sympathomimetic drugs are also sudden onset of symptomatology. Is it a cocaine intoxication or cocaine effect is usually mild sympathomimetic. And, you know, they feel a high, they get a bit tachycardic and hypertensive and get big pupils, but continue to function relatively normally. They don't get the sudden onset of this paranoid, abnormal behavior. So that's part, I don't think Dr. Cass mentioned so much, what brings them to the attention of law enforcement or to paramedics or in hospital that they start suddenly exhibiting this paranoid, delusional, perhaps, behavior and start acting very bizarrely inappropriate for what the setting is. And whether that be wearing no clothing in the middle of winter or whether it be walking in and out of traffic or brandishing umbrellas through in a mall as if they're swords, um, that kind of bizarre behavior is sudden onset and part of might make me think more of excited delirium as compared to cocaine intoxication. The cocaine intoxication patient tends to act normally, although they're having a good time. When you get to cocaine overdose, then you're getting to a point where your patient has extreme symptomatology of cocaine effects, so very sympathomimetic, maybe severely hypertensive, collapses because of the sodium channel blockade effect of cocaine, not because of the sympathomimetic effect of cocaine. So it's there is a continuum. In most settings, there is a drug involved in excited delirium, but not in toxic amounts. So yeah, we find that there, there's been a recent use of cocaine, 
in blood work or in urinalysis, you find cocaine parent, which you rarely find in a patient who comes in with cocaine chest pain. It's already been metabolized. So usually a history or an evidence of recent use of a drug, but not in toxic amounts, not the kinds of levels that we're expecting to see if somebody dies from just cocaine overdose or PCP overdose or whatever it is. These tend to be chronic cocaine users. Right, who, who have now just used. But not used to the to degree that, that, say, someone who would die from cocaine overdose. We have a very good understanding of the pathophysiology of cocaine overdose. In terms of excited delirium, do we have any additional information that, that can help us understand what's going on pathophysiologically with excited delirium? There's theories, but I don't know that there's a lot that could be said with, with certainty. So there are thoughts that the cause might be related to dopamine transport. It might There might be some sort of predisposition in some individuals to this syndrome because of a deficiency in dopamine transport. But there really isn't a lot, I mean, that I'm aware of, I know Dr. Thompson may have some other information from the toxicology side of the world, but there's not a lot that I'm aware of that's definitive on what makes people that get excited delirium syndrome, and certainly the subset of those that die, what differentiates them from everyone else. I think there's certainly this theory about the dopamine transporters, and that applies certainly to cocaine, because cocaine use does block dopamine reuptake. So that's as part of you know how cocaine works. There's many mechanisms by which cocaine works, but that's one of the things. So if you can't reuptake your dopamine, you end up with dopamine depletion, and then a number of the different you know signaling in the brain that you know where your dopamine is important doesn't function temporarily while you're high on cocaine. If you use it chronically, then you're going to get more of these transporters, so trying to get the dopamine back into the neuron to save your dopamine made just as an adaptation to chronic cocaine use. Why is it that certain individuals then have this response to this, the next cocaine use? Is there a genetic predisposition that some patients will not be able to increase dopamine transmission? Is really what's happening we think at some level. But that's a mechanism that may be consistent with cocaine. It actually might be consistent with some of these chronic um, schizophrenic patients who have withdrawn from their uh, schizophrenic medication, their antipsychotics, etc. So, that, so that's another population of That's another population in that, excited delirium. That might be tr- prone to this syndrome. Right, with, without any drugs on board. Without any drugs. Okay. Usually in the setting where they have withdrawn voluntarily because they don't believe their drugs are helping them, so they stop taking their antipsychotics. In that population, dopamine may be responsible for their symptomatology as well, but there's also PCP patients that have been, you know, have had this syndrome, and there are amphetamine-induced excited delirium syndromes, and dopamine doesn't work, you know, isn't so much of an issue in those particular patients, so, or, you know, given the mechanism of the action of those drugs. So there's got to be some other unifying theory as well. We do know when they do get to an emergency department that 
in high, high lactates, like your patient was described. Um, they got low, low bicarbs. They actually have increased these heat shock proteins as well because they're all very hyperthermic. Often temperatures aren't measured, and you know when you see a case report in the literature, but for the most part, they're all very hyperthermic. When when you look at the numbers overall, I mean, in the in the white paper from ASAP, they make reference to an as yet unpublished body of work uh, out of Alberta, where they looked at people that had these encounters with law enforcement. It was only a small subset of them that that manifested excited delirium, and only a subset of those that end up dying. So there's something that happens in those people that are more susceptible in some way and manifest the signs and symptoms of excited delirium and, again, the smaller group that die. And whether that's measured well or reflected well in heat shock protein levels or microscopically, uh, when they look at the striatum in the brain, there's a change in their dopamine transport receptors present. Is there anything clinically that can give us a clue that this patient might be heading towards cardiac arrest? Is it just a continuum and some of them end up dying? And is there is there anything clinically that we can get worried about this person's going down the tubes? We've got to act fast. The one observation that that kind of makes one worry when you're encountering someone with an excited delirium is that the people who die, there's often a pattern. They are... All of the things that I talked about before, they're, they're aggressive and agitated and sweating and, and uncontrollable and undirectable. And then there's a period of quiescence, and then they have a respiratory and or cardiac arrest. And there seems to be this pattern in most people. It, it's uncommon to hear reports where someone is agitated and well agitated drops. It's far more common to hear that they're agitated, then they calm, and then they have a respiratory or cardiac arrest. Generally, how long is that period of quiet? Oh, from my experience, it's been less than a minute. Yeah. So it doesn't give you much time to worry. You know, obviously, when you see them suddenly, they're not struggling anymore. That's the time you really got to get vitals there. But it's probably too late. Once that happens, my experience with all of the cases I've been involved with has been it's, it's less than a minute that they suddenly become quiet, and then their vital signs absence. So it doesn't give you much time to get that IV into the patient. Scary. I mean, the scenario possible in the emergency department, and every time, you know, I have a patient come in with, you know, multiple police or security guards on them trying to, you know, sedate them or trying to calm them or restrain them, you think they're by the will of God go I, they're going to arrest any second. Right. And we don't know what's happening in that window usually. That's right. Is that nobody's ever been on a monitor to see that window because they're so agitated, they're so sweaty. You can't get close to them enough to get them on a monitor, to get the, a blood pressure, to get a heart rate because they're still fighting and a, a cardiac monitor is not going to stick to them because they're sweaty, the leads are falling off, it's... A very difficult clinical so scenario. My understanding is that we assume that most of these deaths are bradyacystole. Well, certainly that's part of the observation, and that's a little 
that's a little puzzling because when you when you think about people being you know hyperadrenergic and and agitated and then having a cardiac dysrhythmia, I think most of us would sort of assume that they went into ventricular fibrillation or pulses ventricular tachycardia. Mm-hmm. But in fact, when when a rhythm is observed, and, and Dr. Thompson's correct, oftentimes there's no rhythm observed because they're not on a monitor. But when a rhythm's observed either immediately after or you know after a short period of resuscitation, it's most commonly a bradydysrhythmia or, or asystole. Right. I can explain it pathophysiologically that cocaine is a sodium channel blocker. Mm-hmm. Right? So as it, your concentrations of cocaine get high enough or the duration of time that you've been on the cocaine is, high, is long enough, it, you get complete depletion of your norepinephrine and your dopamine because you can't reuptake it. And MAO still works in the uh, synapse and is breaking down your norepinephrine and your dopamine. Do you get to a point where all of a sudden you needed one more molecule of dopamine to sustain your blood pressure and it's now gone or of norepinephrine and it's now gone and that's why they have this bradyarrhythmia? Your sodium channel is widened out and is completely blocked as well. Um, Your QRS is widening out and so you become wide QRS to the sine wave to asystole. Is that what's happening? Nobody knows because we haven't had them on the monitor long enough. There is another observation, and I don't think it's 100%, but the patient that you really need to worry about is the one who is overweight. Most of these cases, these are very overweight individuals that seem to have had an excessive amount of activity. There is a pursuit before they are able to be subdued enough to bring them into, at least into the back of an ambulance, to the back of a police car, or into the emergency department. And so there is that ad- adrenergic surge as well in an overweight person who may not be used to that kind of level of activity. Mm-hmm. That would make me far more concerned about that having, you know, being a progression of your disease than in someone who is usually fit. The other thing that is often found at autopsy is evidence of chronic abuse of the drug and that there may be some, you know, the myocardial f- hypertrophy, mild hypertrophy or contraction band formation uh, that are associated with chronic cocaine abuse. So the cardiomegaly that was found in this in this particular case is consistent with just chronic cocaine chronic abuse. Cocaine, abuse. Yes. cocaine all around my brain. Hey baby, won't you come here quick? This old cocaine is making me sick. Cocaine all around my brain. I guess the one message from this for law enforcement personnel, pre-hospital care providers, and even people in the emergency department setting is these people represent people with a medical emergency. I think you alluded to that before. This is a medical issue. It's not sort of a behavioral judicial issue. These are people who are at high risk for bad things happening to them. And law enforcement, especially out of the hospital setting, law enforcement and emergency medical services need to really be partnered here on this. So the police may may play a very important role in physically controlling this person to prevent them from hurting themselves or others, but it's got to be with a view to control their actions and then immediately allow the, the resuscitative access by emergency medical services personnel. Because if you are going to have a positive impact, and, and these people, even if they're witnessed respiratory or cardiac arrest often do badly even with the best resuscitation efforts but um, 
any delay in that is just going to make the likelihood of survival that much smaller. So this really has to be looked at as a medical emergency that's happening and police and EMS and police and, and hospital staff need to work together to try and get the medical care to them as quickly as possible. Come together. I think what the important thing is for the emergency physician is this can happen in your emergency department. You don't put this kind of patient in a psychiatry room, in a you know a secluded area. You put them in a room where you can put them on a cardiac monitor. This month, I thought I'd do the quote of the month halfway through the program, and this is a great one from William Mosler. It is much more important to know what sort of a patient has a disease than what sort of a disease a patient has. Now that we've talked a bit about the definition, clinical features, and pathophysiology of excited delirium syndrome, let's move on to the management of these patients in the emergency department. The next case will bring out some of the key management issues. All right, let's go on to case number two. This is a 32-year-old man with a known history of schizophrenia who is brought to your emergency department by the police. The police report that they received a call from a neighbor in the apartment building regarding a disturbance. The patient was found in his apartment completely naked, running around and screaming about God and space. There was urine and feces on the floor and empty pill bottles labeled Zyprexa and Citalopram dated from six months prior. The patient was handcuffed without struggle and brought to the emergency department by two police officers. Upon arrival in the emergency department, the patient became increasingly agitated and the emergency doc as well as the security guards were called to help restrain the patient. This required several people, as the patient demonstrated tremendous strength despite his small stature. The emergency doc noted that the patient was severely agitated and attempted to punch and kick the staff. He was sweating profusely. The nurses were unable to take vital signs at this point. When you're presented with a patient like this, how do you go about controlling this situation? As much help as you can get. Because <laughs> <laughs> this happened in the emergency department, this particular case, but this happens out on the streets as well. And, you know, you're caught, caught between a rock and a hard place, is my interpretation of this, is that, that the more you try to sedate them, the more you try to control them, the more the adrenaline surge occurs and maybe then leads them to adrenaline depletion or norepinephrine depletion or epinephrine depletion, because they're going to hurt themselves because they're running in and out of traffic or they're trying to jump over, you know, huge barriers, etc. Or they're going to hurt somebody else. And in this case, in the emergency department, they're going to hurt the staff. So you have to protect your own as well. 
Um, but if you are more aggressive with them, they get more agitated and may be more likely to go on to exhibit this syndrome of excited delirium. Or, and which, and when it becomes a syndrome, it means they've gone into asystolic cardiac arrest. So you're between a rock and a hard place. It is recommended by some of the you know, authorities and behavior control that the emergency physician actually should not get in and try and physically restrain a person that they should be withdrawn from the room, that they should, the patient, if there's any chance that the patient is going to be sedated, that the patient see you as someone different than the security or the police who are actually physically restraining them. Now the, I mean, this brings up the point, I know for me personally, I've, I've taken a course on how to protect myself from violent and aggressive patients. Is that the kind of thing you sort of Every hospital should have a policy for their emergency staff to take a course in this kind of thing? I think it's prudent. If you're going to work in an environment where people are going to present that represent a danger, then I think it's prudent for everyone to be aware of signs of escalation, how to de-escalate, how to physically protect yourself, Mm -hmm. how to safely restrain someone. Everything Dr. Thompson said is absolutely right. You're, You're in a setting where... You know, it's almost like a chicken and egg. You're you're going to try and sedate and and restrain someone, and that's going to agitate them more. I think the one thing that does seem to be true when when you look at the white paper and and some of the studies is oftentimes people that have bad outcomes have had a prolonged struggle, whether it's with police, with security officers, with people in the emergency department, and well, prolonged duration of it is probably a bad thing. So whatever you can put in place to minimize the length of the struggle, and a struggle is going to happen. The question is, how can you make it as short as possible before you gain control of them and can intervene pharmacologically? You know, whether it's at your hospital coming up with a code white protocol of some sort so that you can get, I mean, even small hospitals that don't have a lot of security staff or any security staff can put protocols in place where... And, you know, all hands that are available can come and assist with controlling someone and shorten the duration. Because if you have someone who is struggling to the degree that these people often are, two people restraining them is going to take a lot longer than eight people restraining them. So you can minimize so the more the people, length. the more people, the better. As long as, long as they sort of have some understanding some, of, of how to do this yeah. in a safe way. So the goal is to minimize the time of struggle. And so some of the strategies we can use... To minimize that, the more people, the better. We want to try and get medications in as soon as possible to control them. And generally, in excited delirium, the contribution of positional asphyxia, I understand, is is controversial. Probably negligible. Probably negligible? Okay, because a a lot of the, you know, anti-law enforcement people like to blame a lot of these deaths on positional asphyxia and are therefore blaming law enforcement for a lot of these deaths. As well as tasers, as well as um, pepper spray, etc. But those have been, for the most part, shown to not contribute to the death in these cases. You know, we, we alluded before to the fact that there really isn't good evidence out there that the position in which someone was restrained makes a difference, despite the fact there was certainly a thought that prone restraint might make things uh, more likely to uh, turn out badly. I'm not sure that's really panned out in, in any sort of evidentiary way. I think what what's probably reasonable to say, though, is in the process of restraining someone, you have to make sure that they're not 
being impeded from breathing, whether whether that's with compression of the neck or having uh, a lot of weight on the thorax so they can't breathe, because one of the things that we know is happening is they're acidotic, so al not allowing them to breathe and to compensate for their metabolic acidosis is a bad thing. Um, but I think I restraining them so that they are supine as compared to prone is important because you need access to the patient as well, to their airway if it goes, etc. In this case, the patient was placed in four-point restraints after great difficulty with continued struggle. He was immediately given five milligrams of Haldol and two milligrams of Ativan IM, and the nurses were able to do some vital signs. His heart rate was 154, blood pressure was 195 on 135, respiratory rate was 32, oxygen saturation was 100%, and his temperature was 38.9. On further physical exam, his GCS was 13, pupils were dilated, his skin was warm to touch and wet with sweat. Uh, there were no track marks found on the patient. There were no signs of external trauma and his chest and cardiovascular exam were grossly normal. We've got this patient now who is restrained. You've given some Haldol and Ativan to. Uh, what would your next step be? I would step back and say that I would not have used a Haldol. I would only use benzodiazepines because for the most part, you have not yet been able to get vital signs, get them on the monitor, get IV access to these patients. I have uh, been unable to find in the literature any references to patient of case studies where a patient has ever died from a single IM dose of a benzodiazepine. I think it's way safer than giving them um, Haldol. Haldol and Droperidol have a very low incidence, but potentially there um, for prolonged QT syndrome and going on to have torsade and then precipitating things that are worse than you're already dealing with. So I am very reluctant to use those medications. Are there any other options in terms of medications? The white paper suggests that you could use ketamine, um, that an IM dose of ketamine would have a relatively short onset of, of action. But there are also you know, potential downsides with ketamine, not just the emergence. is a laryngospasm and um, such that you would then you know, get into more trouble with because you've got a patient who has no IV access, et cetera, et cetera. Yet. So I would also be reluctant to use ketamine personally. I think that the benzodiazepines are far safer. The problem with that, though, is that we're not dealing with what might be the underlying pathophysiology. This patient that you're describing sounds like a sympathomimetic overdose patient, but the differential is quite wide, as we talked about. Benzodiazepines are never going to hurt that patient. The other you know, two medications that we alluded to could. You know, we were joking before about throwing a dart of midazolam or <laughs> from across the room if you can't get to the patient. Actually, I was thinking it should be on the taser gun so that it could at least, instead of an electrical shock, it should be a midazolam <laughs> injection that goes you know, attached to a, a long wire so that you don't lose your dart. Right. And if we're going to progress to you know, excited delirium, and this is part of, if this is particular excited delirium patient, we're not addressing what might be the pathophysiology, the, you know, horrible lactic acidosis, the hyperthermia that the patient has, or the dopamine transporter syndrome. 
What we do do with benzodiazepines is we decrease further sympathorheumatic output. So we're blocking, um, we hope, some of the sympathorheumatic outflow just by a central anxiolytic sort of effect. And there is some evidence, especially in animal studies, that benzodiazepines might have cardioprotective effects, that they act at a receptor that has yet, not yet been identified in the myocardium that might decrease the effect that a sympathomimetic would have on the, on the myocardium. This patient uh, goes on to have an ECG, which shows sinus tachycardia at 150 with peak T waves. Uh, the venous gas shows a pH of 6.3 with, with a partially compensated metabolic acidosis pattern. The potassium comes back at 6.8. The CK comes back at 9,500. The, the glucose was normal, and the tox screen was negative. ASA was negative. Acetaminophen was, was negative, and the common drugs of abuse were negative. Um, you know, I think we can think about the management of these patients in three spheres. is one to control the agitation, and then next to deal with the acidosis and address the hyperthermia. The uh, degree of acidosis in some of these patients seems almost incompatible with life. I mean, I don't think I've ever seen a, a pH that low in any patient. And, and, and you know, that, that may be, I mean, we, we talked before about how it's hard sometimes to come up with what was exactly the mechanism of death, let alone sort of the cause of death, but what was the mechanism of death? Why did this person die where another person didn't? And it may come down to things like the degree of, of acid-base derangement that's there, because that's not something that we can measure readily in the postmortem because it obviously changes after death. Um, so unless those measurements are done anti-mortem in those that do go on to die, it's very hard to know afterwards what was the precipitating event or mechanism that caused this person to die where someone else presented very similar lives. Let's say we don't have the blood gas back yet. Mm -hmm. If you see someone who's got this huge sympathomimetic drive clinically and you can see that they're breathing really fast and they look acidotic. Do you ever give bicarb on spec? I think I would, mm -hmm. um, given that clinical scenario that you described. First, though, I think you know, you've got to establish IV access. These patients are very dry as well. Um, they're hyperthermic, and so they're, and they're, hyper, they're tachypnic. Um, they're sweating uh, profusely and are usually soaking wet so that you know that some of the metabolic acidosis correction could come just by giving fluids. And they need leaders. So I'd start two large bore IVs on a patient like this after I got them on a cardiac monitor and got blood pressure, etc. And I would probably give a couple of liters of normal saline stat. Um, get, you know, just put, pump it in as fast as I could. If I did not correct the tachypnea, I would probably give a bicarb, an amp of bicarb or two on spec. I see. I don't want to wait until they arrest. It's not standard of care in the pre-hospital setting. Think if the patient arrests in the pre-hospital setting, you might think outside of the ACLS box and think, you know, this is excited delirium or this is drug overdose. They're going to be really acidemic. Um, I need to give this patient bicarb then earlier as compared to um, waiting until you actually get blood gases back on the patient. If you need to intubate a patient with excited delirium syndrome or any other patient with a severe acidosis for that matter, remember that stopping the respiratory drive will stop them from blowing off CO2 
and will therefore make them even more acidotic with an increased risk of arresting. So in these severely acidotic patients who you need to intubate, remember to hyperventilate the second they're paralyzed. This will prevent them from even getting more acidotic and possibly arresting. And in terms of the hyperthermia, do we treat these patients like we would any other hyperthermic patient? As long as that's an aggressive approach to hyperthermia, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the Tylenol suppository doesn't do it. Okay. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, I mean, you know, Dr. Thompson's mentioned that part of, part of the management of these people is going to be giving um, a lot of fluids in a short period of time, and that even if it's just room temperature is still significantly cooler than, than their body temperature, and that's going to start cooling them. But all, all the other things you can use if you have access to fans or ice packs or simple things like that, I don't think we have to get um, really make it any more complicated than it needs to be. I mean, a lot of the even a lot of the protocols that have developed for um, induced hypothermia after cardiac arrest have shown that sometimes the simplest things are just as effective. So, you know, a couple of a couple of ice bags and, and a fan and some cold IV fluids will go a long way to start cooling these people. Mm-hmm. I think it's just that you have to recognize that they are going to be hyperthermic. Yeah. Get that temperature. It's part of your resuscitation in these patients. That can be the life-threatening thing. These patients, as you alluded to, he, this man had a huge CK, 95,000. That didn't develop in, you know, an hour of him being agitated and fighting with him in the emergency department to sedate him. Um, that's, this has been developing over some time. You know, hyperthermia in itself can lead to more rhabdomyolysis and or DIC. So you're in a really tenuous situation here with this guy. And you have to, like getting his behavior under control, have to get his temperature under control right away. Okay, so the fluids, I guess, are doing three things. They're helping with the hyperthermia, they're helping with the rhabdomyolysis, and they're helping with the acidosis. Right. So in terms of an algorithm here, control the patient's physical behavior, That's get IV access. First thing you want to do is, is start, start fluids, get all your labs, control the hyperthermia, and consider giving bicarb even before the blood gas. I mean, you had evidence here that this guy was hyper hyperkalemic as well mm-hmm. because he had, a, you suggest, peak waves on his cardiogram. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be a reason that I would be giving him bicarb as well to shift potassium as a temporary measure. So there are, there are, you know, you have some clinical clues that it would be safe to give bicarb to this patient. So I read and I've seen some stuff about using alpha-2 blockers. Um, like clonidine. Now, we don't have an, a way of using clonidine very, you know, other than giving it orally. An alpha-2 blocker would decrease sympathomimetic outflow in the brain. So if, it, you know, if it's, you know, all sympathomimetic, there may be some benefit for doing that. And the other thing is, you know, taking control of them completely once you get that IV access is propofol. You know, and, you know, completely paralyzing them and stopping any further muscular activity to prevent some of the sequelae. Well, that, and that's one of the, that's kind of one of the theories about why the, the prone restrained or why restrained at all might be that last sort of factor before they sort of get quiet and then die is, is that they're, all the sympathetic drive is causing them to hyperventilate and that's all that's maintaining them with a pH is 6.3, mm-hmm. and as soon as they stop hyperventilating the tiniest bit and they drop, you know, another point, that's it. So yeah, that's what I was trying yeah, to yeah. sort of allude to there. But I'm not sure that there's actually 
a lot of proof of that theory. It just kind of fits. I mean, it, it sort of makes yeah. physiologic sense, but there's no proof of it. Like, no, no one's ever been able to, you know, get serial blood gases in these people when they're agitated because you can't get blood gases in people when they're agitated very well. So where do you see the future of research for this? Where should we be putting our money? One of the areas sort of for clinical research on this, I think we're pretty close to having a case definition now that's accepted or that, you know, it probably wouldn't take much for people to accept a case definition. And then people at least could start comparing apples to apples because a lot of the the case series that are out there, what one person says is excited delirium might not be what someone else calls excited delirium. Education seems to me to be a very important part of all of this. You know, there's education for law enforcement, which is very important. There's, in particular, education for emergency physicians. How do you see that playing out in in the future? What what kind of things do you think we could be doing to educate physicians besides emergencymedicinecases.com? Well, I I can't think of a better way than that. (laughs) Um, You'd be paid. (laughs) I'm not either, so I'm going to try and work something out. Um, I think there's there's a couple of target groups. So so emergency physicians certainly are one, and and even just the the um, utility of something like the the white paper to have something approaching a case definition and sensitizing people to some of the pitfalls and and how to better manage these people as we start gaining more knowledge of that. Because I certainly don't think all the answers are there yet. That's one group. Um, I think law enforcement and pre-hospital care providers are another group. Um, police forces and police officers recognize this syndrome and recognize that it's a medical issue and not a behavioral issue, per se. But there are still deaths that continue to occur in different jurisdictions of people who are brought to cells with excited delirium and who die in custody. So it's not universal, although I think it is pretty widespread, and I think the more consistent messaging that's out there about the need for medical care for these for these individuals rather than um, you know just just confining them to a to a detention or lockup type facility the office of the chief coroner ontario has in the past um, has issued memos from the office to law enforcement personnel coroners clinicians and others as information was starting to become known about excited delirium and, and the office is actually in the process of updating that information and continuing to to help provide the most recent information to law enforcement and other agencies so that everyone sort of has a shared understanding of what this syndrome is and, and um, whatever's most, uh, uh, most recently known about it. There's actually an annual conference on excited delirium in Canada as well. Um, the first annual was last May, and the second one will be this coming May as well. And it's you know a conjoint sort of effort to um, for pre-hospital um, um, law enforcement, pre, um, hospital personnel to get together and talk about what's the best management for this, what's the most recent um, evidence, etc. So we'll be hearing more in the near future to guide us a bit a bit better. We hope. These groups get interested parties get together to be able to manage this best, because it often becomes that you know pre-hospital or law enforcement takes the hit for death in in uh, for induced you know force being used against these patients because and it must look brutal 
if you are a you know bystander that's watching someone get hit in the legs with batons and the person keeps running and the police keep pursuing and um, but the patient is dangerous to them and to others so you know, the law enforcement has to use that kind of force it's just do they have enough, enough people to take them down quickly enough to stop this adrenaline surge Wow, I really hope I never get a case of excited delirium. It's a tough management case. But after listening to this episode and learning all about it, I feel so much better prepared. Just to review again, the key here is to minimize the physical control time that it takes to administer benzodiazepines IM as soon as possible, obtain IV access, and give two large bar IVs, fluid bolus, that will help with the acidosis, the hypothermia, and the rhabdomyolysis. Consider giving bicarb, which will help the acidosis and the hyperkalemia, and uh, start cooling with simple measures like ice packs and cold saline. Remember, when you're doing your RSI, you want to start hyperventilating immediately, and don't give the patient a chance to drop their CO2 even further. Just before we go, though, there's something that's been driving me bonkers that I need to bitch and complain about. So just hear me out for a minute here. As part of its emergency room wait time strategy, the Ontario government is investing more than $82 million over 2009-2010 to reduce the amount of time people spend in hospital emergency rooms. Sounds pretty good, eh? Uh, Well, the program known as Pay for Results rewards hospitals for meeting specific ER wait time reduction targets. So through this initiative, hospitals are supposed to focus on shortening the amount of time patients spend waiting in the emergency departments. They're trying to find ways to admit patients to a hospital bed more quickly and to reduce ambulance offload delays. That all sounds fine and dandy. Uh, In order for the EDs to get a piece of the pie, though, uh, they have to reach these certain target times for the patients to be discharged or admitted, depending on the level of acuity or their their CTAS score. This all sounds great and dandy, but consider for a moment what is happening as we are being pushed to see patients faster, discharge them faster, and consult earlier. What this initiative doesn't take into account What I think is the most important thing, and I hope we all do, is good quality patient care. We aren't getting awarded for keeping patients for observation who require it, like patients with allergic reactions or kids with head trauma who you've decided not to radiate with a CT but have unreliable parents, or the drunk guy who, if you let go too early, might cross the street outside the hospital and get run over by a car. The other thing we are being forced to do more and more is consulting our specialist services early. This turns us into nothing more than triage doctors. If we rapidly see a patient and decide they need a specialist consult even before any of the blood and imaging tests come back, we we learn nothing. Over time, our our skills will degrade and our specialty will will become boring. Um, And what about our residents and students? They won't learn anything beyond the ABCs if we're asking for consults the second the patient's stabilized. 
What's more is that the this initiative doesn't take into account any safety or adverse event report, reporting. Uh, it doesn't even come into the equation at all. Uh, I suspect that the faster we discharge patients, the more adverse events are going to happen. So, I don't know. Can someone please tell me what's going on here? I need to understand why this is happening. that it's only 11 20 we act quickly <laughs> <laughs> for merch toss